Welcome to the Green Lectionary Podcast, a production of Creation Justice Ministries. The Green Lectionary is a conversation on scripture through the lens of creation justice. My name is Derek Weston, and today we will be looking at a text for the third week of the season of creation. For those that may be new to this season of creation, it is a liturgical season stretching from September 1st through October 4th that calls us to a time to renew our relationship with our Creator and all of creation through celebration, conversation, and commitment. For this episode, I am joined by three guests. The Reverend Dr. Leah Shade is Professor of Preaching and Worship at Lexington Theological Seminary and author of Creation Crisis Preaching, Ecology, Theology, and the Pulpit. Deborah Reinstra, English professor at Calvin University and author of Refugia Faith, Seeking Hidden Shelters, Ordinary Wonders, and the Healing of the Earth. And Reverend Josh Scott, the pastor of Grace Point Church in Nashville and author of Bible Stories for Grownups, Reading Scripture with New Eyes. Join us now for our conversation on Matthew 20. Let the songs of the water, land, and sky resound, cause together we're all bound. Within these pages, there's always new life to be found. Our scripture today is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the, of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So friends, I ask you, where is creation in this passage? I think that creation is found um, in the reality of um, land that has been gobbled up by the wealthy for extractive profit and um, and at the expense of oppressed workers. And so understanding that the land and the oppressed workers are intimately linked here is something that I think preachers really need to foreground rather than allowing it to simply be in the background. Because when we bring that to the forefront, I think we can see in the parable some important social and economic critique. And I think that critique is something that Jesus wants us to wrestle with. 
<clears throat> I love that this passage seems to be about economics and labor law. And <laughs> I mean, these workers need to unionize, right? <laughs> um, so I, I think we, we have to take that as a kind of economic commentary, but what that commentary is, there's all kinds of ways to parse this. And it's a vineyard. I mean, we can think about it as exploitative. Absolutely. That's a way to think about it. Um, maybe wouldn't have to be. Um, the, the, the boss in the end turns out to be kind of generous. So I will have to grapple with that later. Um, but a vineyard is ideally a place of cooperation between humans and the earth and a place that maybe you look back to tending the garden in Genesis 2 and think, well, a vineyard could be a good place of cooperation between humans and, and the earth. Um, it's humans drawing out the potential of these amazing grapevines. Um, one of the things I thought about is why does the, the boss go out and hire more laborers later in the day? And I wondered what the urgency was. And, and so it doesn't say this, but is it the harvest? Like, does this work need to get done? So is that why he keeps going out like, oh my gosh, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. Need more people. So there, there could be a kind of um, reason behind the, the bosses paying those people who came later a lot because as the day goes by, the need is greater. So from his point of view, he's giving value to these workers um, because they're coming in at the last minute and actually saving him from a problem, unharvested grapes or whatever. Now I'm just making assumptions here, but there is a way to kind of think about the economics of it from that point of view. You know, what I find interesting as we jump into this parable, first of all, is that this person, the powerful, the, the it's called landowner in this, in the translation that I'm looking at and the one you use, the actual language there is householder, which I, I, so landowner could imply this person owns a specific, this, this specific plot of land, right? It's, it's his land. But the idea of a householder implies this is a person who probably is quite wealthy and owns a network of properties, um, and, which in, in Judea in the first century would be problematic in the sense of, I mean, the idea is that everybody has their family land, uh, that everybody has been given. And so if, if you have wealthy, powerful people coming in and taking all the land, um, usually getting it in foreclosure, right? Making a loan that they know the, per the person can't pay back and then calling it due and taking the land as collateral. And suddenly you have, was it Isaiah or Amos who, who says, woe to you who add house to house and field to field. So there's no room for anyone but you in the land, um, right? What the prophets critiqued we see happening. And so just a couple things on the front end, I have developed a, a hermeneutic of suspicion uh, for myself that my initial reading where I want to take a story, a, a parable of Jesus, I probably need to be suspicious of that because the way I've have been taught throughout you know, my 40 some years to read this parable um, is a, a very specific way that, that typically like other parables, like the parable of the talents and some others, rewards really good capitalism and isn't a challenge or a pushback on that, on those values. Um, and, and so where do we see creation here? Well, we see creation in the, in the vineyard, in the land, but we also see 
um, if we want to sort of make a bridge to today, we see, and I think this was true in the ancient world as well, we see how absolutely destructive to creation, this kind of unbridled, um, exploitive, extractive economy can be. When it's really just about more and more and more, suddenly what what makes the land unique and beautiful and special is that people have roots there. They have this is their family land. Their family has dwelled on this land for generations. And now suddenly um, this colonial enterprise comes in and they can't even sustain their family on what's grown there and they end up losing it uh, in a, a land grab. So I think creation does get a little bit overshadowed in this text by the actions of certain people, or just by the very context and the very setting, which is actually what happens in these kind of economies that creation gets overlooked. And, I, you know, I just would encourage you to look at America in 2023, that when everything ends up being about uh, wealth and power, that the land gets overlooked and suddenly you have people saying, well, climate change is not real, when actually it's quite real. And it's we're living in the very, I mean, I'm sitting in Nashville, it was 90 degrees at nine this morning. Um, it gets hot here, but that's not normal for it to be uh, at the levels it's, it's hitting. Well, and workers get overlooked too. I mean, the, the, the idle workers, why are they idle? Why it, and it's, it has to do with what you're saying, probably that these people have been displaced and therefore they don't have their own land to work. And so they're waiting around for the mercies of some uh, landowner to employ them. The parable seems to invite us to be in the point of view of the workers who begin the day though. And I can't quite figure that out. So I'd love to hear what you all say about what point of view are we invited to take in this parable? Is the landowner God and we're supposed to be the workers who are pouty about fairness? What point of view are we supposed to take here? I think that's a great question. Um, uh, You know, William Herzog wrote a book called Parables as Subversive Speech, Jesus as Pedagogue of the Oppressed. And he points out that these day laborers, they make up about five to 15% of the population and they exist in this liminal space as, as both you, uh, Deborah and Josh have pointed out, they're outside of um, the family structure and the communities. And, and here's the other thing to remember, the reason householders go at, go for the land, for the, for the day laborers is because when they're doing the diff, the really difficult backbreaking work, it means that they are not having their slaves do the work, which the slaves are their property. And so you actually are protecting your property, damaging your property by going after these, these day laborers. So when you see this sort of endless supply of these day laborers, that should be um, a red flag for the original listeners. Like, yeah, why are there so many of these day laborers? Like they just, they're just there. And that is an, an indication that exactly what Josh was talking about, these, these land grabs displacing people. And, and, and so if we think about, all right, the traditional reading of, you know, God is the landowner. Okay, well, if that's the case, that's that's really disturbing because the behavior um, would well. First of all, this God is calling himself generous 
okay, great. But God is doing nothing to address the underlying system that leads to this downward spiral of poverty for these day laborers. And it also means, so if we're talking about point of view, that God is intentionally pitting these day laborers against each other, like the landowner did in this story. So it, it, it reminds me of like, when I take students to Eastern Kentucky and we learn about the, the coal industry and how they would build these coal towns and they had workers from all different nationalities, different cultures, skin tones, and they would do things to intentionally pit them against each other so that they would not organize and fight against the unfair labor practices of the company town. You're speaking my language. I, that's where I'm from. Uh, I'm from an area where um, to get to our house, you would drive past the a coal camp, uh, you know, with the company store where you were in debt and you could never actually get out of debt. Um, and I think what you're saying is exactly right. And, when you, you know, when you think about this story or, and I think this is true for other stories, um, like in the story of the parable of the talents where you have a wealthy householder who entrusts property to certain household managers and then goes off and comes back and expects a, you know, we have been taught to read the powerful characters in these stories as God or Jesus because we have been taught, we haven't been taught that Jesus' message um, primarily was not about what happens to you when you die, but he was preaching a message that um, was only religious, in my opinion, in the sense that it was inspired by his understanding of God and God's justice. But it was a political economic message. Um, and so why is it that we, why is it that I tend to read these parables and I want to identify God with the up and to the right, you know, with the, the capitalist ideal. Um, well, it's because I've been raised in a system that's taught me to do that. But I think Jesus' first listeners, when they hear about it, when they hear the word householder, all the little lights and whistles on the dashboard start blinking. Because this is a person who, if they are wealthy, and they have lots of land and lots of, lots of laborers available to them, that probably means that that wealth was built and that 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 network of land was put together on the, on the backs of, and on the on harm to actual communities of people who lived on that land, worked that land um, and have now been displaced from it. And so I think that that's where my hermeneutic of suspicion comes in right away. When I want to assign God to a character in a story, I then pause and say, is this character anything like the God that Jesus talks about? the God that Jesus seemed to be inspired by the, the God that Jesus believed was just and cared about um, the sparrows and the flowers, but also about, uh, you know, masses of people being hungry and needing to be fed is what is. And, and so if that doesn't line up then, and this story, the way it can be read, it, Oh yeah. God is that God is generous. God gives people who work full one hour, the same as God gives people who work. God doesn't play favorites. But I, I do think what we see in this story is not that. Uh, by, by the way, a denarius was not generous. I mean, it was it was the lower rung of the day laborer. I mean, it, you could you could if you want to be generous, you're not just kicking around a denarius per worker. You're 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 doing something else. That's the sort of the bottom level. Um, and so you know, pitting the workers against one another. There's so much in this story that when you really get that, if if you understand it in first century context, it would critique 21st century context, not affirm it. 
I wonder if the point of the parable is that it's all wrong. So the idea is, look, I'm going to tell you this parable and you're going to find it weird. And then you're going to realize that you're thinking about God and salvation in terms of economic systems that you're familiar with. And God doesn't really, that's not God's system. You're, you're stuck in this weird economic formulation of you are laborers and you do a certain amount and you expect a certain, you know, stingy something from God. And you're mad at other people who get more than you. That is not how to think of it. So maybe the whole point of the story is to jar us out of our economic thinking about God's economy of salvation and grace and care. I love that, Deborah. I, I think you're spot on with that. Um, because if we think about that last line, uh, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And if we think about it, not as prescriptive, but descriptive of the way things are that you should be uncomfortable with, then it moves beyond this sort of aphoristic moral of the story that we often hear about in pre in, in sermons that you know conveys some kind of abstract principle but instead it becomes a sort of rueful observation about the system and and this is what jesus is is trying to get us to wake up about and and so uh this seeming generosity, which as you've pointed out, Josh, is really not generosity at all. It's it, uh, uh, Wilson Dickinson in his book, The Green Good News, he says, it reveals a hollow generosity that lines people up so as to maintain an asymmetrical power with the rich giving scraps of their abundance to the poor which fosters antagonisms between those who should find solidarity. We are on the same page on so much of this. You, uh, exactly what I was going to say is that we always read, well, often read parables as if they're prescriptive. The kingdom of heaven is like this, meaning this is what God is like, as opposed to the reality of the kingdom of heaven. It, it's, not, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. When it comes into conflict with the kingdom of the world, uh, with empire. This is what happens. And if you follow right after this parable is told for the third time, Jesus tells his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be executed by the empire right after this story. Um, and it, as we know, we can't read just stories in isolation. It's in the larger context and this larger context. It's interesting that Jesus would follow this story with a reminder to his disciples. We're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be executed. Um, and, and then next you have the request of James and John's mother for them to sit at the right and left. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. It's like, this is all building up. Um, and what in, in Matthew, you know, if, if I can just talk about one of my favorite features in the entire New Testament, it's, it's the way the gospel of Mark uses sandwiches, right? Where Mark essentially begins with a story, inserts a story, and then ends with the same story he began with. And the middle story sort of is the uh, interpretation of the bigger story. Matthew doesn't do exactly that here, but what Matthew is doing is Matthew is building and you know, he's got the parable of the workers in the vineyard. He's got the request of James and John. And then in the middle, he's got this bit about Jesus death, which I think is probably the thing that's supposed to be the interpretive guide, which is 
Jesus is explaining why the kingdom of God uh, is going to come in such conflict because the value system, uh, specifically the economic value system. I mean, I think if Jesus was just preaching a different theology, he doesn't get in trouble, right? If he's just saying, you know, hey, whatever the empires make, yeah, it stinks here. It's terrible here. The empire's wicked. Um, but you just got to, you know, you got to do your best and grin and bear it. And then someday there's a sweet by and by and you're going to go there and it's going to be great. Um, he doesn't do that. He says that the system, the whole system is unjust and the economics of it are unjust. And that when you mess with the money, that's when people start trying to kill you. And I'm with you, but I can hear um, some of my colleagues starting with just that first verse and saying, look, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Okay. Well then, what are we saying about this landowner? Like everything that we've been saying is that Jesus is critiquing, but Jesus comes right at the beginning and says, no, it's like a landowner. So how do we make that shift for people so that they can really understand what's going on here? Or, or as some people might say, are we off base and trying to make the text say something that it doesn't really say? I'm just, you know, playing devil's advocate here. That's a really important question. I think the way I was taught as a kid about texts like this is that they were aimed at the Jews to say, be nice to the Gentiles because they're part of this too. So, so you know, the, the workers who've been there from the beginning are the Jews and we are the Gentiles. And thank goodness God lets us in and pays us the denarius too. Um, so that's how I was taught to interpret this. And I don't know if that's still taught or what, but I suppose that's one way to look at it. I think we have to keep bringing people back to Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is like does not mean he's being prescriptive, that this is how the world should be. Uh, I think it is a descriptive statement of the kingdom of God, and you can also go back and you know and see how he's doing this in other parables. He does the same thing with the parable of the talents, where the kingdom of heaven, it's like a man who goes on a journey. But very clearly, I think, in that story, by the time we get to the end, the landowner is not God. The landowner is Caesar. The landowner is Herod. The landowner is, the, you know, the powerful elite. And so I think we just have to say there's a difference in saying um, the phrase like meaning the same as and like being you know the experience of the kingdom of heaven is going to be like this sort of like what he says earlier in chapter 11 of matthew where he's describing john the baptist and he says from the time of john until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take hold of it um right i think that that everything he's doing is describing the experience when you seek to live out this kingdom in a practical way when in, in terms of resources, in terms of specifically money and land, then people get really, really squirrely, technical theological term there. Uh, and <laughs> they get squirrely because it's starting to poke and prod at the system that has empowered them and keeps them as comfortable as they can possibly be. Yeah. I really love what you said, Josh, about the framing of the story and the fact that the squabbling of the disciples later is about who gets to be first and who gets to be last. Um, I think that that is a really important point to draw out of this is how often 
we want God to be the person who determines the firsts and the last, because we're really committed to having firsts and lasts. And maybe that comes back around to the whole uh, colonializing and exploitation. And, you know, we want firsts and lasts. And Jesus is saying, yeah, no, that, that sort of stuff gets all tangled up in the kingdom of God. And you need to kind of let go of the first and last thing, people. Um, so maybe that's one way to draw out of this in that has implications for land and for economics, but also has kind of implications in our very hearts about how we feel about other people in any context. And this, the parable, I mean, the story about James and John and wanting power mirrors the squabbling in the parable of the people like, well, we, we were given this much. Why, why, why aren't we given more? They got, you know, why do we get the same as they did? And then Jesus comes back with this great line where he says to the disciples at the end of the James and John bit, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it will not be so among you. Whoever wishes to be great must be a servant. It's, it's almost like the, that parable is a way of easing us into what the disciples are struggling with, which is who, who gets to lead this thing? Who gets to be in charge? Who gets to decide for everybody else? And you're just like, that's not how this thing works. We're not, uh, one of the things I often say when I talk about, you know, the idea of progressive theology is like, we're not, we don't want to take the same methods and approaches as the theology we're trying to leave behind and just put better theology on it. We want a different way of being and a different way of doing church denominations systems. We, we want it to be more just, generous, less hierarchical. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. And then at the end, there's a healing of some blind men, which is, always i think symbolic in the gospels of of generally opening the eyes of the disciples to something they haven't seen before and so i think this entire chapter is is functioning that way um and yeah at the center of this discussion is a very real lived experience for jesus and his followers which is what about the land and what about this of course vineyard is often symbolic of israel itself right and isaiah and jeremiah that whole idea of God is the vineyard owner and Israel is the vineyard. Um, and so at the center of this still is it comes back to creation. It comes back to land. It comes back to if we don't have, if we don't own land, if we don't have our land, how can we sustain ourselves? And God's gift to us had been land that would sustain our family for generations. So can I shift a little bit then to how it would apply in our modern context? And I'm, I'm thinking about, um, uh, last year, I took a trip out to the Central Valley of California to visit with um, a pastoral colleague, Reverend Nelson Rebel Gonzalez, who ministers to a um, um, primarily migrant population uh, who work the, the fields in, in the Central Valley. And I see so many of the same kinds of themes where you have these very wealthy landowners literally having vineyards <laughs> that are worked by day laborers and uh, migrant workers. They are taken advantage of. Um, they're exposed to chemicals. They're made to work in the heat of the day. Um, they're exploited. They produce wealth for the landowners, but they have no property, no rights, no support system, no access to health care, and they are at the mercy of those who hire them. So I want to know how that population 
hears this parable. That's, that's, you know, when we talked, we were talking earlier about the perspective here and Josh, you were saying, you know, we, those of us who are landowners would love to be hearing this as affirming of where we are in the social order. And I want to hear this from, from the side of those who are being exploited and um, are holding up this order for us. And we have absolutely no concern for the, the harm that's being done in that process. I, I want to touch on that and, and I want to move us forward um, because, you know, kind of drawing all of this together, um, both the story of the disciples that comes afterwards and even thinking of Jesus's own words later in Matthew of thinking of the least of these and that Jesus is there with the least of these. Who is the least of these in in this story? The least of these is the person who has been working all day and points out the injustice of the system. So I think that when we talk about how people who um, are doing this work in the 21st century what they're going to identify is, yeah, there is no way of hearing this story as anything but unjust. There is no way of hearing this story as anything but exploitative. And even if the original authorial intent was for this to put God in some sort of light that is benevolent, we can't read it that way. And I think we have to allow scripture to be that that we can't we can't allow ourselves to read it as god as benevolent landowner um because we know this situation now i i don't think jesus's original hearers would would subscribe to that either i think they would say no that this is a fundamentally unjust situation you're describing and this is really challenging our notion of the kingdom of heaven. And it's also questioning our understanding of hierarchies, which again, the disciples clearly did not yet get at this point. Um, but it's but there's so much, I mean, you all, you all have said so many fascinating things and I'm very much tempted to let you all keep going, but I also don't want this to be a three-hour podcast. So let me move to the next question. Actually, I kind of do want it to be a three-hour podcast, let me be honest. Um, so how is God calling us to interact with creation? Again, especially if we're putting ourselves in the shoes of those who are being exploited. I think one of the creative ways you could engage this to think about creation is um, to ask, what are the grapes seeing in this? If the grapes could tell the story, what would they say? What, what would the grapevines say? Um, do they care about any of this bickering back and forth? Um, wh what do they what does the vineyard want in all of this? What does, what is, how, if, if creation could write this, the ending to this parable, or even rewrite the parable, what might creation say? 
Yeah, if you're going to start this again with the kingdom of heaven is like and really make it prescriptive, how would the story go? I don't know. I don't think I come up with that on the on the spur of the moment here. <laughs> I have to think about it. Because as you were saying, Derek, the the least of these, as you define the least of these in the story, are the ones who get scolded. So that <laughs> by the parable. So uh, in light of everything we've discussed, that's not the goal, right? The, the goal is to think back around the economic systems that the parable draws from and imagine something better. Yeah, I, I think what I thought of immediately, Derek, when you're talking is that we, we've taken a story and we've taken the oppressed in the story and turned them into the villains. And we do that in other stories, not to harp on it, but the parable of the talents, we turn the third servant who opts out of an unjust exploitive system into the lazy, no good, um, you know, refuses to do the right thing. And so we've taken people who have been oppressed and we made them the villain. And I don't know, I hope it's okay to go into this, uh, just the immediate connection. You can always delete it if you don't like it. But, um, you know, one of the things that has occupied a lot of my brain space recently is the song by uh, Oliver Anthony, uh, Richmond, North of Richmond, right? Which is the song about Appalachian angst, Appalachian um, frustration with a system that has overlooked and ignored you. But in that, in that song, he attacks people who uh, are in poverty uh, with, with a certain set of lyrics. When I first started, I thought that's the right anger directed at the wrong source. The problem isn't people who are dependent on government aid. The problem is a system that continues to operate in such a way that it keeps people unable to sustain themselves, to, to flourish. Um, I just think about that song, like so much of it, I was like, I want to get behind because so much of it is saying, this isn't right. This isn't fair. I'm from Appalachia. I, I see what my hometown has, what has happened to my hometown. I'm angered by it, but it's not the fault of people who are on government assistance. The fault is a system that requires people to be on government assistance, but then doesn't assist them in a way that actually helps them fully to be sustainable. And so we keep turning, and it's exactly what happened in the parable. If you can convince the workers to argue amongst themselves and, and to not focus on the person doling out the meager cash, calling it generosity, then they will never get to the core of the issue, which is the system doesn't work. It works for a small group of people and it works well enough for others of us so that it numbs us to the fact that it's not really working that well for the majority of people. Mm, I love that, Josh. So I would say that um, perhaps this parable is holding up a mirror to the harsh realities of our exploited, exploitative and agricultural systems and urging us to imagine a world that nurtures both land and people. I mean, if I get back to my original question, what would the, what would the land say here? The land would not know the land owner. You know who the vines know? They know the hands of the ones who are dressing the vines. They know the ones who are reaching in and pulling out the grapes. They know the ones who are getting in there and weeding around. That's who the land intimately knows. And when we look at 
the the critique of the prophets of 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 Israel, and you mentioned this earlier, Josh, about how when the land is taken from them, th this not only takes away their their livelihood, it disrupts the the stewarding of land that goes back generations. I mean, when you think about when the land was given to the the Israelites and just got to say taken from other people <laughs> in order to be given to the Israelites right so there's there's lots of questions like who actually owns this land excuse me <laughs> right um so that just even like land owner is really problematic but you know people stayed on their land because they knew it. They knew where the soils were good. They knew where the streams were. They knew how to nurture that land. And it was passed down through the family because they could tend and to till and to keep. That was, you know, the Genesis 2 uh, uh, premise here. So when you have disrupted that, when you said, all right, I'm taking this land away. I own it now. You've not only hurt an individual, you've hurt an entire family, you've hurt an entire community that has relied on this nurturing relationship between the land and the people for generations. Yeah, this is why the story of Naboth's vineyard is problematic too, because it really wasn't Naboth's to give to King Ahab. It was his family's and his progenies. Like he wasn't, it wasn't just his. Um, I think, you know, you back to that question of what would the grapes want? Probably not a monoculture. So just very practically and agriculturally, a monoculture is not a way to have anybody thrive, including the grapes. And I wonder if we asked, what about these scolded least of these workers? What would they say the kingdom of heaven, sh you know, is like? And I wonder if that goes back to the prophets, too, that you mentioned, Leah, Everyone shall have his own vine and fig tree. You know, we all have our little place of stewardship. We all can sustain ourselves as a community. There's a kind of equality about it. Um, yeah, that's, it's not this monoculturing um, social stratified system that the parable suggests. That's not good for people or land. You know, I can't help but think about the, Toward the end, maybe at the very end of, of Kings, there's this line as the people of Judah are going into exile that finally the land got its Sabbath rest. Right? The idea was that the whole time the land was not being given the rest it was it needed. And it's interesting that the, the story of Jesus takes place at a, a similar time in that Matthew's writing in the aftermath, but Jesus was living just in the, the foreground of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And a, a different sort of, I mean, not an exile in the literal sense, but a different sort of exilic feeling. And just the way that this sort of economy and this sort of approach to land ultimately leads to the absolute collapse of society, right? Like when you have one group of people gobbling it all up and, and the vast majority of people starving to death, throughout human history, that has almost always ended in violence. That has always been most always been destructive for the people who aren't as well armed, aren't as well trained, aren't as powerful. And it's just interesting uh, that that verse from the book, of, the books of Kings haunts me sometimes, right? Just this idea of now, finally, 
because the similar practices are going all right. The prophets are critiquing adding land to land and house to house. And it's like, this is, it's going toward disaster. And so it's like the way we treat land. I mean, and of course we can talk about this in terms of climate change, but, but, but societally, socially, economically, the way we treat land, the way we approach resources can have a devastating impact societally uh, on where things go. And conversely, it can also have a transformative impact if we do it well and just and generously, because it can lead to the flourishing of everybody in the community. And so it's, it's I, I feel like the gospels again and again and again are putting us at the crossroads of, of quite, quite literally life and death. They're saying there's this way, there's this nonviolent, generous, just, compassionate, flourishing way that we believe Jesus has taught us to live. And then there's the way we tend to want to pull, which just leads toward one stone not being left among and on, on top of another. And we're being continually invited to decide where we're going to, mm-hmm. where we're going to go. And how we imagine God too. Like, do we imagine God as the, as presiding over that same kind of economic system writ large? Um, or do we imagine a, a God who has this vision of everything flourishing. Can I, I know Derek, you have another question, but I just want to um, go back to one thing that we were talking about earlier um, regarding the traditional interpretation that, um, that this parable is about um, really about Christians and Jews that, you know, I, I just want to point out in the previous chapter um, in, in 19, we actually have, this line, uh, the many who will be first will be last and last will be first. So, uh, and it's this, it, it's the part about the rich young man um, who goes away grieving because he has many possessions and Jesus says to him, go sell your possessions, give the money to the poor. So <laughs> this parable is the exact opposite of what Jesus just said. So I, I, I really don't think it can mean that it's about the Israelites and the, and the Christians. I mean, you can, but if you're going to look at, um, you know, literary criticism and see, okay, what just came before Peter's saying, well, we've left everything and we followed you. And Jesus is saying, right. When, when you give up these things that you think define who you are in order to live in community, you're going to get so much more than your small little world. Mm. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and receive an eternal life for many who will be first will be last and the last will be first. And then we go boom, right into this parable. So it's just, it is jarring our world all over the place. That's what Matthew's trying to do here. That's what Jesus is trying to do. Like, like I feel like it's trying to reveal the, the, the jagged truth about a system that seems to run so smoothly for those who sort of enjoy the sweet grapes on their plates and, and to say, no, you need to see a deeper truth here. I, <laughs> a couple of things are coming to my mind. Um, one, and, and Leo, this said this, idea had come to me earlier, you know, thinking about and kind of combining this idea from the prophets of, of, of those who, what are those who 
join house to house. What if some of these day laborers were the former occupants of the land, right? That these were the, and and that they were uh, kicked off their land by this rich landowner. um, And now they're forced to do this kind of work. And we've seen this again in our own country's history, that this is the kind of thing that happens. Um, We also know that when it was in family hands, it tended to be tended better and in in a more ecologically sound manner. And so what if the prescriptive reading of this parable is instead of everyone getting an equal day's pay at the end of the day, everyone gets an equal share of the land that everyone had an equal amount ownership of what this this land would be and that they would also have equal say in its care intending um can that- we just go in and rewrite the parable to make it say that that would be great <laughs> <laughs> listen i i grew up baptist uh not anymore but that's how i grew up zero percent pentecostal i almost shouted when you said that like that was that was so beautiful. I mean, I I just I just wonder, you know, if we if we don't let our imaginations do that, and, and part of why why I love this this podcast and why I invite really smart people on it is I don't think we allow ourselves to do this with scripture mm. often enough, right? Um, this kind of imaginative. Um, 21st century reading of, of scripture. So um, let me so get can, to my last. Wait, wait, oh, wait. Please. This is really cool. You've totally sparked something like pinging all over the place, Derek. Okay. So what if the, what if the parable was that at the end, everybody got a portion of the land and the people who got really ticked off were the other householders around saying, what the heck are you doing, man? You've just divested yourself of everything. You're making us look like jerks. And and you've turned your the system. Now now it's a co-op. Now That's they all employee-owned company. It's a employee-owned company. <laughs> 401ks. With four, yes, and a, and a labor union that is going to make sure everybody has the same rights. Like and what? Who should be mad? Plan. Right. Who should be mad should be the other landowners around that see, oh, my gosh, you are totally screwing up everything, man. Yeah. And you're putting the lie to the system. Yes. You're I'm throwing, like, rocks in the gears. Stop it. <laughs> Now that that's a parable I could get behind. That's a that's a good parable. I like <laughs> this that. This is um this is like midrash, right? This yes, is and it is okay for us to do this. And I want to yeah. say to preachers who are listening, it's okay for you to do this yeah. in your sermon. It is okay to use prophetic and theological imagination with the text because Jesus did it with the texts. We're given an example of that, and I think Jesus is giving us the permission to be able to think creatively about how it applies in our own time. And it's not out of nowhere, right? We're not coming up with these ideas because we're ignorant of the rest of scripture. Our ideas about God's character and about what what God's dream of redemption is for Mm -hmm. all of creation, they come from elsewhere in scripture. So we're we're getting these scriptural passages to talk to each other. 
Yes. I'm, I'm looking again at verse 15, where the landowner says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? And I'm thinking, no, wait a minute, buddy. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> your own money or are you acting, you know, as as the tender of God's money? Right. And what are you doing with it? Yeah. So, I mean, that that should trigger a kind of, huh, this landowner is not necessarily. It is certainly not right. what Jesus talked about with the rich man yeah. giving yeah. away everything. Yeah. Okay, so well, so then what is the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> the kingdom of well, heaven is like coming along and showing you, look, this is not right. It is that mirror. How often did Jesus have money? Like, think about the times when people are like, hey, 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 should we pay taxes? He's like, I don't know. I don't care this stuff. What does it look like? <laughs> like he never, and I, I really do think this is a, a piece of Jesus. Like, I, I think part of what he and his disciples do is they op they're opting out of the economy. And they're creating communities where, like, how do we do this? If we're not carrying around a denarius, how do we take care? Well, everybody brings what they have. Yep. Um, you bring your fish we and bread, patrons. and I'll bring my wine, and yep. we'll open up. Our, and if we, I mean, what, what is the point of feeding the masses? If not, if everybody shares what they have, everybody has enough. I mean, it's Jesus stone is teaching soup. us how to. Yeah, community organizing is what yep. Jesus is yeah. teaching. Exactly. Um, <laughs> to be fair, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, uh, subsidize some of this well and that's the other brilliant thing about jesus right like some of it's being subsidized by uh, the wife of herod's cupbearer um so it's like he's he's bleeding the economy while also not participating <laughs> in it himself <laughs> that is so good it's i love that josh yes yes <laughs> we need some kingdom oriented grant writers that's right that's right <laughs> Hopefully they're listening. Um, so, uh, man, I, 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 I could just set you three loose. Um, but and you've touched on this a little bit. But where is there a call for the church here? And I think I, I definitely don't want to miss the call that Leah just gave to the church, which is that part of the call to the church is to read scripture differently. Mm. But but within this passage. And we're in th our thinking about this passage and the way that we're thinking about the land and the workers on the land, which really cannot be separated. Um, where is there a call for the church? I, I think a really basic thing that a, a pastor could do with their congregation is to ask the question, do you know who picked the produce that you ate today? Do you know where it came from? Do you know what the workers were paid for their labor? We are so disconnected from the people who get who make sure that we are fed. We know nothing and it's designed the system is designed that way on purpose. So have we thought about the slaughterhouse workers who work in these dangerous meatpacking plants and what they endure so that you can sit down and have your chicken dinner or your steak dinner? Um, and then I would say go a step further. In what ways does our, if, if you're in a denomination, what does ways does our denomination support farm workers? And how can we support their efforts? What can we as the church do to know more, to know, make more connections, and to start to make changes that disrupt the system? Yeah, those are fantastic suggestions. And I, I think for a lot of people, 
even one prior question or one prior uh, suggestion is as Christians, we can critique the economic system we live in. We do not have to just say it's all fabulous and American and we love it and you know we're going to play nice with it. We can critique it and we should. Amen. I would encourage churches, pastors specifically, to to not try to resolve this tension mm. in a sermon for our communities. Mm. Um, I gave a sermon over the pandemic on the woman, uh, the widow who gave her last two pennies, uh, the widow's mite. And I just said, I don't think that Jesus is praising the widow for her generosity. I think he's condemning the system that would take her last bit. Yep. And I, so I launched into talking more about economics and ended the sermon by saying something like, I don't know what we do with this. And I think I do, but it's really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I, I think I know if we're actually taking Jesus seriously, I think I know where this goes. Um, and it makes me uncomfortable. I think we have, you know, growing up in a sitcom world where the, the, the tension begins and is resolved within counting commercials like 24 minutes. Uh, we think the whole idea of a sermon, even if it's 30, 40 minutes long, is enough time to resolve. And it's what I love about the book of Jonah. It's what I love about the story of the prodigal, which is at the end of the story, we're not told. And Jonah got his attitude right and realized what a jerk he was being and said, I'm sorry, God. Or that the older brother said, you know, you're right. We should be celebrating. My, he, he's, he's annoying, but he's still my brother. None of that. We were just left hanging on the outside being asked, what do we do with it? And so I think if, if what we can do is help hold up a mirror to the system we live in so that I mean, we, we, we don't see it generally because we live in it so much, it's just our assumed reality. But what if, what if the system, what if the people this system is, is harming, what if they're not lazy? Mm. Mm. I mean, here's the, here's the deal. The workers in the parable weren't lazy. Mm-mm. They didn't have any place to go. They, they were a part of a system that, that wasn't making space for them. So what if people, what if the people who are struggling in the American system aren't lazy? What if the system is designed to make them struggle? Mm. What if we can reframe how our congregations and people around us think about people who are on the underside of systems like ours? Um, and then uh, if we're sitting in the discomfort, not resolving it, if we're trying to actually see human beings in their, the, 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 lived experiences and hear their lived experiences then i think it creates a whole other opportunity for you know uh, there's jesus tells one parable and at the end of it the, the people listening are so angry they want to kill him because they got it right mm-hmm. <clears throat> i'm not saying we should tell stories in ways that make our congregations want to throw us off cliffs but i am saying there are times that people get it and we just need to name that you it's okay that you're uncomfortable it's okay mm-hmm. that you're angry uh, i think you're getting it. Also, don't read yourself as the good guy in the story, then, mm-hmm. uh, because you're having the same response that wealthy landowners would have to these parables. And that's okay. It's just important to acknowledge where I want to find myself is with the hero. And I ain't the hero of the story. Mm. I am much more in common with the landowner than I do with the workers who are standing around hoping to get some work for the day. Mm. I want to point out, too, that the the, when we talk about you know the lazy workers, well, why weren't the, you know why why were these ne'er do wells hanging around the marketplace? 
by the time the landowner gets to the last group, these are probably the most undesirable workers. They're probably not as strong. They're probably um, physically, um, you know, disabled in some way. Um, they're not the most desirable workers. And so he's going to the bottom of the barrel uh, to, to get done what he wants to get done. And to answer your very early question, Deborah, my understanding of like when, when it's time for the crush, like there's a reason why they call it the crush. You do like, you have to do this. You have to harvest these grapes at the, a certain time and a certain peak and you do it until it's done. There's no waiting around like, okay, I'm, I'm clocking out now. No, you've got to do it or the, your product is, is going to not be as good quality. So yes, there's absolutely urgency here. Yeah, I think to go back to what we've all been saying about the kind of call to the church here. Um, and Josh, I think you're right that we have to let ourselves be uncomfortable and be okay with that because that discomfort is where the drape falls off the golden calves that Ooh, we worship. that'll preach. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> um, and, you know, for us, the golden calf is so often the American economic system if we're on the top of it. Mm. And that Love is that. really painful to see ourselves at the foot of that golden calf. Mm. Well, and it's not just if we're on the top of it. It's if we can imagine ourselves on the top of it. <laughs> That's true. Right? That's right? The that is the scary thing about our economic system. It's not always just about if we're on the top of it and willing to oppress those beneath us. It's if we can imagine ourselves on the top of it and how we want things to work if we're on the top of it. Okay, so now I'm going to get political and you probably want to cut this out. But I think that's one of the reasons why a figure like Trump is so attractive to so many people, because yes. when he says things like um, me exploiting people is not a bad thing, it's smart business. Right. You know, when we talk about the laziest person in this parable, you know who that is? It's the landowner. He did no work. <laughs> He yeah. did nothing but walk his little sandaled feet to the marketplace and hire some people and sit under the shade of the tree at the end of the day and flick out a couple bucks to them. He did no actual value added work. Leah, he didn't he's actually a job even creator. The pay. Job creator. Oh, right, right, right. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. That's the, the whole, and, and we can, you can, if you need to cut out this whole section, but what I tell people. <laughs> People, people were, you know, where I'm from in Appalachia are, are generally full on board the Trump train. And I just keep saying, uh, this billionaire does not care about you, nor does he understand your life. Nor does he have billions. Point, nor does he have billions, right? <clears throat> but this whole idea there of, of seeing yourself on top, you then, uh, if you can see yourself on top, you then might be okay with the oppression of people just below you. Oh. There it is. Right. Because it, it, it's it, as long as it's not, or you might even be experiencing oppression yourself, but you so aspire and the, the whole myth that anybody in this country is self-made or that anybody pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. When in fact, where did those bootstraps come from? Were you born with bootstraps? How did you get bootstraps? There are people who've never seen bootstraps. So this, this, this idea that we're self-made, self-contained, isolated. And if we work hard enough, 
um, you in this country, you'll succeed in uh, amazing ways. That's just not true. Okay, There's so, so many other factors. Okay, so then I'll suggest one possible way to redeem the landowner in this is holding up a mirror to those um, grumbling workers who would have who can see themselves in the position of the landowner to be making the decisions and do everything according to the hierarchy. And here's one person that comes along and says, you know what, I'm going to flip everything on its head. And the fact that you're ticked off about it tells you more about yourself than it does about me. That's my only way to give a generous reading to the to the wealthy landowner. Or even let's not even make a generous reading. Let's just say hold up and hold the landowner up in front of the workers and say, "Is this who you want to be? Mm. Is yeah. this is this who you want? Like that's what I that's what the whole Trump deal. Like and they do, they, but that's what they want, and they do. Uh, that that is people, what they want. They and you know, uh, are, are, are you are you jealous? Jealous means that you want what I have. Yeah. Envy means that you want to be who yeah. I am, and yes. That is like, so yes, I, I guess you could say that the landowner is holding this mirror up to ourselves, that this is who we are. Yeah, gosh. This all plays into my theory that none of us ever really graduate from middle school. <laughs> perpetual. Uh, okay, I could, I could, I could let this go on uh, all day, but I, I need to cut it at some point just for the sake of of editing. Um, Leah, Josh, Deborah, thank you so much for this. This was such a rich conversation, and um, wow, I, I honestly just don't know that I will ever be able to look at this parable the same again, and that's a really good thing. So thank you all for your insights and your uh, and your wisdom on this. Thank you for joining us for the Green Lectionary Podcast. This episode was produced by Derek Weston, and the music was provided by Christian McIver. You can learn more about this and other programs of Creation Justice Ministries at creationjustice.org. Our story comes alive within these pages For every time and place throughout the ages God speaks and is heard and the enduring word Calls us to care for our world as we share the love That can set creation free Restoring the earth to wholeness, peace, and harmony. Let the songs of the water, land, and sky resound. Cause together we're all bound. Within these pages, there's always new life to be found.